Book Five, Chapter One, Part Six of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Guero. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two, by Henry Charles Lee. Book Five, Resources, Chapter One, Part Six confiscation. The eagerness for these spoils was such that claims for them were put in without waiting for confiscation to be decreed, and it is evident that, when a man of wealth was arrested, there were agencies to convey the news to the expectants, and the prey was divided before the query was killed. After Isabella's death in 1504, these grants were an economical way to secure the fluctuating allegiance of the Castilian nobles which philip of austria was ready to exploit and the nobles eager to profit by when the licenciado de medina of valladolid was arrested the admiral of castile fadrique enriquez petitioned him at once for the confiscation and philip from brussels may five fifteen o five granted the request repeating it six months later while awaiting juana's confinement before sailing for spain the two spouses on September 12th, sent orders to all the cities, the nobles and officials, not to obey Ferdinand, or to pay taxes to him, and the receivers of the tribunals were specially told to withhold from him the confiscations. Philip's orders from Flanders, however, received scant respect, and his reign in Castile was too transitory for him to exercise any notable influence on the disposition of the confiscations. As for Ferdinand, what he granted with one hand he withheld with the other. February 23, 1510, he issued a cedula to all receivers, saying that, in consequence of the falling off in confiscations, if all the grants which he had made and was making were paid, the officials would not receive their salaries and would abandon the work, to the great disservice of God. Wherefore, in future, no matter what orders he or the Inquisitor-General might issue, no grants were to be paid until all officials had received their salaries and ajudas de costa, and, when such grants were presented, he or the Inquisitor-General was to be consulted. The rule was to be that debts must be paid first, then salaries, and grants not until the last. Yet, on the day previous, he had given to Fernando de Masueco, a member of the Suprema, certain olive orchards and censos confiscated on Gonzalo Jimenez of Seville. The same day he ordered the receiver of Jaén to deduct 20,000 maravedis from the appraised value of some confiscated houses wanted by Dr. Juan de Sontojo, former judge of confiscations of Jaén and he continued making gifts with reckless prodigality as though the royal treasurer were overflowing and the inquisition were richly endowed in january the admiral of castile had had a grant of houses valued at eight or nine thousand sueldos and on april second he ordered the receivers of toledo seville cordoba and jaen each to pay three hundred seventy five thousand maravedis or one million five hundred thousand in all to his servant juan rodriguez de portocarrero apparently it was exceptional for the inquisition to enjoy the product of its exertions for in may we find him assuring the suprema 
that no one had asked him for a confiscation of one hundred thousand marabedis just made in Valladolid, and that he will reserve it for the known necessities of that tribunal, and in July, that although he has been much importuned for another confiscation, he will make no grant of it, so that the officials shall not suffer want. It is needless to point out what a stimulus this state of things gave to the condemnation of those whose estates promised relief. Ferdinand went on precisely as before, and it would be superfluous to multiply instances of his reckless profusion, save that we may mention a gift to his wife, Queen Germain, in 1515, of 10,000 florins from the confiscations of Sicily, and we may recall his attempted grant of 10,000 ducats to the Marquis of Denia from the composition of Cordoba. In this general scramble for fragments of the spoils, there is one point that may be noted, the demand for attractive slave girls. How their existence came to be known to those who asked for them, we can only guess, and it would be indiscreet to inquire why reverend members of the Suprema seem to be especially desirous of such acquisitions. April 7, 1510, Ferdinand writes to the receiver of Cartagena that he is told that, in the confiscated property of Romando Martin de Santa Cruz, there is a Moorish female slave named Alia. If this is so, she is to be delivered to Dr. Pérez Gonzalo Manso of the Suprema to be his property as a gift. March 18, 1514, the licenciado Fernando de Masuecos of the Suprema petitions for a Moorish slave girl confiscated among the property of Juan de Tena of Ciudad Real, and Ferdinand orders her to be given to him, to do what he pleases with her. There was some contest over Fatima, a white Moorish slave girl, confiscated in the estate of Alonso Sanchez del Castillo. The Marquis of Bijena asked for her, and Ferdinand granted his request, June 15, 1514. But when the order was sent to Toledo, the deputy receiver refused to obey it, alleging that it was obtained by false representations, as the Suprema had already given her to the fiscal Martin Jimenez. This was promptly answered, in a letter signed not only by Calcena, but by the members of the Suprema, reiterating the grant to Vigena, and ordering the receiver to compensate Jimenez for her value. It is suggestive that no such eagerness is shown to obtain male slaves. Ferdinand himself was not above appropriating articles found among the spoils of his subjects. In 1502 we find him taking fifty-five pearls from Sardinia, a part of the confiscation of Miser Rejadel, burnt for heresy. Sometimes he did not even wait for the conviction of the owner, as in the case of a horse, which in 1501 he gave to the Inquisitor of Córdoba, and then on learning that the animal would be serviceable to him in the chase, he had it sent to him and ordered four thousand maravedis to be paid to the inquisitor, wherewith to buy a horse or mule. He was even more unscrupulous in 1501, when in Granada, on hearing of the death of Bernaldaja, a prisoner not yet convicted, he ordered that the garden belonging to him in the Rambla should be seized and given to the princess Juana for her pastime although he did not know whether it had been sequestrated. It manifests the abiding confidence felt in the conviction of all who fell into the hands of the Inquisition. Yet it would be unjust to Ferdinand, 
not to allude again to the numerous cases in which he softened the hardships of confiscations by concessions to the sufferers or their representatives, and this, when, as we have seen, his own treasury was empty. No doubt in many instances the influence of Calcena was purchased, but as a whole they are too numerous not to find their origin in a kindliness which has been deemed foreign to the stern consolidator of the Spanish monarchy. Nor could Calcena have ventured to presume too far, during a long series of years, in making his master an unconscious almoner. Two or three examples of this must suffice to show the spirit actuating him. In 1509, Juan de Peralta of Segovia betrothed himself to Francisca Núñez, daughter of Lope de Molina and his wife, who were prisoners of the tribunal of Jaén. They were condemned and burnt, their estate was confiscated, and Peralta petitioned the king, saying that he could not marry without a dowry, and begging an allowance out of the estate, whereupon Ferdinand ordered the receiver to give them two hundred thousand maravedis. The Inquisition was not to be balked. Francisca, in turn, was tried and reconciled with confiscation. Peralta made another appeal, and this time Ferdinand granted twenty thousand maravedis. October twenty-one, fifteen hundred, he writes to the receiver of Leon to release Leonor González, reconciled, a vineyard confiscated on her, of the value of two thousand maravedis, because she is poor and has a daughter to marry. In 1510 he instructs receiver Badia of Barcelona to collect from the bishop of Urgel ninety libras due to the confiscated estate of Guillén Dalla, and in view of the poverty and misery of Beatriz, Violante, Isabel, and Aldonza, his daughters, the money is to be paid to them. There was also an old debt due to Tala by Ferdinand's father, Juan II. This he orders to be collected from the rents of property set aside for the benefit of Juan's soul, and to also be paid to the daughters. These are only examples of numerous similar acts, which afford a welcome sense of relief as mitigations in some small degree of the miseries inflicted on thousands of the helpless through the pitiless enforcement of the cruel laws of the Church. It would be wrong not to bear testimony also to the spirit of justice, which is apparent in many of Ferdinand's decisions of questions brought before him. Thus on January 8, 1502, in instructing a receiver about a censo, in dispute with Galceran de Santangel, he concludes by telling him to act without legal delays, so that justice may be administered with rectitude and promptitude and that nothing may be taken but what belongs to the fisc, without wronging any one. September 12, 1502, he wrote that Garcia Quartz complains that he had granted him certain censos, and, then by a second letter, had stopped the transfer, whereupon he now orders the matter to be settled, according to justice, without reference to what he may have written to the contrary. For it is not his will to inflict wrong on any one, it would be easy to multiply these examples from his confidential correspondence with officials when there could have been no possible object in a hypocritical affectation of fairness. If he not infrequently rebuked inquisitors and receivers for negligence in gathering in confiscations, it may be truly said that he more often scolded them for undue harshness and delay in settling honest claims. 
the pressure on ferdinand for grants from the confiscations continued to the last and was yielded to more often than prudence would dictate the courtiers maintained intelligence with the tribunals to obtain advices in advance of the arrest or condemnation of wealthy conversos in order to make early application and occasional letters from the king to receivers asking information as to such estates and forbidding their sale without further orders indicate a growing sense on his part of the necessity of caution one of his latest utterances as mortal sickness was stealing over him is a letter of september twenty three fifteen fifteen to the receiver of toledo in reply apparently to a statement thus furnished he had received he says the information as to the confiscated property of pero diaz and his wife and also the representation as to the pressing needs of the tribunal in consideration of which he will change his mind and make no grants from it except of a hundred thousand maravedis to his treasurer vargas to reimburse him for certain outlays thus to the end was maintained the struggle between those who labored for the harvest and those who sought to reap its fruits when after his death jimenez sought to bring order into the finances of the inquisition he seems to have felt that his conjoined power as inquisitor-general and governor was insufficient to remedy these abuses and he procured from the young king charles a pragmatica dated at ghent june fourteenth fifteen seventeen which was assuredly drafted by him this recites that the salaries and ordinary expenses of the inquisition are defrayed by the confiscations but experience shows that often they cannot be paid in consequence of the grants made by the crown this must be remedied or the inquisition cannot be sustained to the great damage of the royal conscience and therefore during the good pleasure of the king and until the salaries and ordinary expenses are provided for no graces donations or reliefs are to be complied with under pain of a thousand gold ducats copies of this are to be sent to every tribunal and all officials are exhorted to see to its enforcement the gloss put on this by cardinal adrian when sending it to the tribunal of sicily shows that there was no scruple in construing its provisions most liberally he says that he has heard that many are obtaining grants on the sicilian confiscations what was collected under ferdinand must be used as he had ordered which was to buy rents for the support of the tribunal the new pragmatica postpones all grants to the salaries and charges of the inquisition and as sicily must provide for the support of the suprema and of some of the home tribunals it can be alleged in refusing to pay all grants that are presented wherefore none must be paid without consulting him having issued this pragmatica charles proceeded to nullify it with all convenient speed but it served as a justification to the receivers in withstanding him three months later on september nineteenth he landed in spain surrounded by a crowd of hungry and greedy flemish favorites eager to enrich themselves at the expense of their master and his subjects this reinforcement of the importunate native beggars made the profusion of ferdinand seem niggardly by comparison peter martyr tells us that the flemings in less than ten months after their arrival had already sent home eleven hundred thousand ducats drawn partly from the indulgence of the santa cruzada 
and partly from the Inquisition, for they obtained grants not only of estates confiscated, but also of those of prisoners still under trial, showing how promptly they established relations which gave them secret information of the operation of the tribunals, and how little chance of escape had the unlucky prisoners, whose estates would have to be refunded if they were not convicted. This was one of the abuses of which the cure was sought in the project of reform in 1518, which failed through the death of Jean le Sauvage. The booty thus secured by the Flemings shows how the confiscations had increased under this pressure, especially as the Spaniards were no less eager, if not quite so fortunate. This thoughtless prodigality of Charles is emphasized by the fact that he was impoverished in the midst of his profuseness. July 5, 1519, we find him ordering the receiver of Cartagena to pay the paltry sum of thirty ducats to Fernando de Salmeron, receiver-general of the Suprema, to reimburse him for a loan of that amount. The receivers did all they could to check these extravagant liberalities, for large as were the receipts, the tribunals were threatened with bankruptcy. Saragossa, in reporting, March 18, 1519, to the Suprema, some impending convictions, endeavored to avert the dissipation of the results by representing its poverty. The salaries of most of the officials were more than a year in arrears, and if the king did not exercise more restraint, the tribunal could no longer be maintained. One or two instances of the struggles between the receivers and the recipients of the royal bounty will illustrate the existing conditions, and incidentally show how Adrian and the Suprema were forced to bow to the tempest, and to connive at the pillage of the resources of the Holy Office. A letter of Charles, January 19, 1519, to Juan del Pozo, receiver of Toledo, relates how he had granted to Monsieur de Setebrun, of his bodyguard, the confiscation of Alonso de Baena, and had ordered Pozo to convert it into money and pay it to him. How Pozo had subsequently been notified that Setebrun had sold it to Inigo de Baena, son of Alonso, and had been ordered to deliver it to the latter, how neither of them had been able to make him surrender it, how another royal order had been served on him, and then one from Adrian and the Suprema, with no result, save an assertion that he had no funds, how Baena had made four journeys to Madrid to his great loss and expense, the whole winding up with peremptory command to obey the repeated mandates without further delay or excuse. It is probable that still more energetic measures were requisite to get the property, for Pozo was an obstinate man. A letter from Charles to him, September 5, 1519, refers to an order on him for six hundred ducats, in favor of Monsieur Baudre, which remained unpaid, in spite of repeated commands from the king and Cardinal Adrian, whereat Baudre is much aggrieved, especially as he has been keeping a man in Toledo, at his expense, to collect it. Charles now orders it to be paid within sixty days in default of which Pozo must, within twenty days thereafter, present himself at the court, wherever it may chance to be, with all his books and papers for examination. This was a most formidable threat, and perhaps brought Pozo to terms, for on December 2nd we find him ordered to pay on sight four hundred ducats to La Scholz, as procurator of the Toisson d'Or, and the next day five hundred more to Jean Vignacourt, a gentleman of the royal chamber. Cristobal de Prado, receiver of Cuenca, 
was another troublesome subject. Charles granted to Cortavilla and Armastorf two of his chamberlains, the confiscated estate of Francisco Martinez and his wife. It must have been a large one, for a suggestion was made of giving the courtiers four thousand ducats and reserving two thousand to pay the salaries, but they demanded the whole, and Charles, April 10, 1518, ordered it to be turned over to them, and if any part had been converted to the use of the Inquisition, it was to be made good out of other confiscations. Prado staved it off for nearly eighteen months, pretending to hesitate about including the dowries and marriage portions of the children, until Charles, September 5, 1519, ordered all these to be swept into the grant. Soon after this, on November 9th, there was another crop of confiscations at an auto de fe at Cuenca, when in preparation for fresh bounties, Salmeron, the receiver-general, was ordered to report as to their value, and also as to the condition of the salaries and other indebtedness. This probably deprived Prado of excuses for a while, and we hear of no more refusals to pay until April 16, 1520. The Duke of Escalona had asked for the confiscations of three of his vassals at Alarcón, amounting to three hundred and fifty ducats, but Prado alleged that only two of the parties named had been condemned, and that the order, therefore, must be surreptitious. He wrote in this sense to Charles, and to the Suprema, but on September 7th he was commanded to pay it, and the letter was signed by Dr. Manso of the Suprema, and countersigned by Cardinal Adrian. Cuenca, at this time, must have been a mine of wealth. Just before sailing from Coruña, Charles, on May 8, 1520, ordered Prado to pay a thousand ducats to Antoine de Coy, two hundred to Henri d'Espinel, four hundred to Simon Fisnal, Majordomo to Charles de Coy, Prince of Chimay, and five hundred to Adolf, Duke of Cleves. On October 23rd, Charles writes that his secretary, Guy Morijon, had been charged with these collections, reported that Prado refused to pay them, but he adds that, as there are now funds sufficient, after paying salaries and expenses, and the thousand ducats to Cardinal Adrian, they must be paid in preference to subsequent grants. As Adrian had been given an interest in this heavy raid on Cuenca, it is probable that Prado was coerced into obedience. Our old friend Villasis of Seville was wary and experienced, and accustomed to hard blows. He gave the courtiers infinite trouble, but the cases in which he was involved were too numerous to be detailed here, and space can only be found for one of five hundred ducats to Francisco Guzman and Antonio Tobar, gentlemen of the king's chamber. This had originally been drawn on Cuenca, but Prado had been found too impervious, and it was transferred to Seville. Villasis evaded it until Charles, on May 6, 1519, threatened him with Merced, being placed at the king's mercy, if it was not paid at once. This was serious, but Villasis was unmoved and merely replied that he had no money to pay the overdue salaries, besides large sums owing for services and for judgments rendered against the confiscations. The affair dragged on, until on August 23, 1520, Adrian and the Suprema ordered immediate settlement, in default of which an agent would be sent, at his expense, to do it personally. This was probably effective, 
as we hear no more of it. Aliaga of Valencia was one of Ferdinand's oldest and most trusted receivers, and had given evidence of similar powers of resistance, if we may judge from the anticipatory measures taken when the interests of the powerful favorite, the Prince of Chimay, were involved. When news was brought to the court of the reconciliation and confiscation of the wealthy Alonso de Abeja of Valencia, a speedy partition was made among the vultures. Eight hundred ducats were assigned to Jean de Baudre and Philibert de la Bolme, gentlemen of the chamber, three hundred to another gentleman, Jaime de la Trujera, and the rest of the estate to the Prince of Chimay, after paying salaries, if they could not be met out of other confiscations. Orders to this effect were dispatched to Aliaga, July 5, 1519, with a pressing letter from Charles to the inquisitors. Apparently the beneficiaries felt that more active measures were necessary. Simontis Not, the prince's majordomo, was empowered to receive the property, and, as his agent, Guy Morijon, was sent to Valencia, July ninth, with letters to the inquisitors, to the governor of Valencia, and to Aliaga. The inquisitors were told that as the clause concerning salaries might be so construed as to consume the whole, they must order Aliaga, under pain of excommunication, to deliver to Chimay's agent, within three days, all the properties, goods, debts, and money of the confiscation, except the eleven hundred ducats to the other courtiers. If the necessities of the tribunal required any portion, it must be very moderate, so that she may, if possible, might get the whole. The governor was ordered to help these not, and to urge the inquisitors to compel Aliaga to obey. Aliaga was told that under pain of deprivation of office, he must deliver the estate to Morijon within three days, and must strain every nerve to meet the needs of the tribunal from other sources, so that she may, may suffer no deduction. If the salvation of the monarchy had depended on the realization of the grants, the letter could scarce have been more vehement. Yet it was all in vain. Aliaga was imperturbable, and on December 8th Charles expressed his displeasure that the eleven hundred ducats had not yet been paid, though he had postponed to them the grant to Chimay. But it is not likely that his vague threats, in case of further delay, proved effective. In this carnival of plunder there is small risk in assuming that the pressure on the tribunals gave a stimulus to the prosecution of the richer class of the conversos, and that wealth became more than ever a source of danger. In fact, the number of large estates referred to in these transactions would seem to indicate that few escaped whose sacrifice would supply needful funds to the Inquisition, while ministering to the greed of the courtiers. It need occasion no surprise, therefore, if the threatened new Christians, in their despair, appealed to Leo X, and rendered it worth his while to remonstrate with Charles. Yet the latter, while scattering ducats by the thousand among his sycophants, had the effrontery to instruct his envoy, Lope Hurtado de Mendoza, September 24, 1519, to disabuse the Pope as to the accusation that the Inquisition was prosecuting the rich for the confiscations, the truth being that all, or nearly all, of those prosecuted were poor, and that the fisc had to support them while in prison, 
and to pay their advocates and procurators. After Charles's departure in May 1520 to assume the imperial dignity, we hear of a few new grants. He was rapidly ripening under the weight of the tremendous responsibilities accumulated upon him, and was recognizing that his position implied other duties than the gratification of his courtier's greed. It would seem that he willingly shifted upon the inquisitor-general and suprema the burden of such trivial matters, and left it to them to assent to, or dissent from, such graces as he might bestow. A grant from a confiscation at Zaragoza, dated at Brussels, October 1, 1520, bears the formula that it is with the assent and advice of the inquisitor-general and council of Aragon, and, though it is signed by Hugo de Urries by order of the emperor, it has the vidmus of Cardinal Adrian. Practically thus the control was lodged with the Suprema, whose needs, as we have seen, prevented any accumulations in the tribunals, and we hear little or nothing subsequently of this dissipation of the confiscations. If I have entered thus minutely into the details of this branch of inquisitorial activity, it is because its importance has scarce been recognized by those who have treated of the Inquisition. It not only supplied the means of support to the institution during its period of greatest activity, but it was recognized by the Inquisitors themselves as their most potent weapon and the one most dreaded by the industrious classes which formed their chief field of labor. Its potency is the measure of the misery which it inflicted through long generations on the innocent and helpless, far transcending the agonies of those who perished at the stake. To it was largely owing the ultimate extinction of Judaism in Spain, for the exalted heroism which might dare the horrors of the Brasero might well give way before the prospect of poverty to be endured by disinheriting offspring. To it also is greatly attributable the stagnation of Spanish commerce and industry, for trade could not flourish when credit was impaired, and confidence could not exist when merchants and manufacturers of the highest standing might at any moment fall into the hands of the tribunal and all their assets be impounded. Even the liberality of the Spanish Inquisition in not confiscating the debts due by the heretic was but a slender mitigation of this, for the creditor was liable to ruin through the difficulties and delays interposed on the realization of his credits, and past transactions were not secure until protected by a prescription of forty years. The Inquisition came at a time when geographical discovery was revolutionizing the world's commerce, when the era of industrialism was dawning, and the future belonged to the nations which should have fewest trammels in adapting themselves to the new developments. The position of Spain was such as to give it control of the illimitable possibilities of the future, but it blindly threw away all its advantages into the lapse of heretic Holland and England. Many causes, too intricate to be discussed here, contributed to this, but not the least among them was the bleeding to anemia through centuries of the productive classes, and the insecurity which the enforcement of confiscation cast over all the operations of commerce and industry. End of Book 5, Chapter 1, Part 6 Recording by Guero